It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. On Friday, the House approved President Biden's Build Back Better spending bill. The final vote came to 220 to 213 with Congressman Jared Golden, the only Democrat breaking with his party to oppose the bill. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi aimed to vote on the bill Thursday night, but Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy took to the floor for a record-breaking eight-plus hours, postponing the vote until Friday morning. You know, when I look at this bill, it angers me. We are so better than this. You are spending so much money, never before. The $2.2 trillion spending bill now moves on to the Senate. For this and more, we'll bring in our panel. Member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, Bill McGurn. USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page. And publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter. Uh, Amy, it seems like this is going to be an interesting process in the Senate, and we just don't have a sense of how long it could go. December looks like a consequential month on a number of things, not only this, uh, but funding the government, uh, debt ceiling, and uh, seeing what happens with this bill. It's funny, though, Brett, that, that the holidays the desire for members of Congress to get out of town and get home with the families seems to make things go a little more quickly than, say, a different time of the year. And so I think the expectations, quite frankly, even before this bill passed the House, uh, was that we weren't going to see a final piece of legislation until probably the end of December, like right at the end of December. at the last minute here before uh, the new year. And there's some precedent for that. We've seen a number of really consequential bills that made their way through reconciliation. For example, when Trump was president, the tax bill, I think that was right around the end of December, close to to the uh, New Year's holiday. So there is some precedent for that. But if you're a Democrat right now and you're looking at the situation, for 2022. You see a president whose approval ratings are in a very, very bad place. And your expectation or your hope is that those numbers go up between now and 2022, which makes voting against something like this, uh, I think, even harder for for many Democrats. It's not that this bill is necessarily going to raise the president's approval rating overnight, but dealing a very big blow to the president at a time when his numbers are already in a, in a bad place is not something that uh, 
Democrats are going to going to want to do right now, thinking ahead to the next election. Yeah. But Susan, the interesting thing is, is that from the progressives who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill with the understanding or the buy in that the moderates were going to say, "Okay, we buy what you guys passed in the House. There still is a lot of distance between them. And you wonder how this bill is going to change and how it might or might not be accepted by the progressive party in the House. You know, the bill will certainly undergo some changes in the Senate. And there are some provisions the House put in there, I think, understanding that the Senate was likely to to take them out. But I actually think Democrats uh, on all the factions of Democrats are now pretty optimistic that this is going to get done and get sent to President Biden's desk. Uh, You know, you saw a big celebration in the House uh, and a pretty unified House losing just one Democratic vote on a bill this big and this far reaching is pretty remarkable. Of course, there's no margin uh, for error at all in the Senate. But I think Democrats feel like they've cut the hard deals they need to cut, that progressives have been willing to come down to, you know, 1.85 trillion or whatever that final uh, number would be. And that the defections that we saw on the infrastructure bill where six Democrats deserted uh, their leadership in the House on that vote. I don't think we're going to see that on this one. Uh, and nor can we if it's going to pass because Republicans had to rescue the Democrats on that infrastructure bill. Democrats think they're going to pass this. It's going to go to the president and they are hopeful that it will improve his standing. Uh, certainly going having this bill not go through the guts of President Biden's domestic agenda. That would certainly do harm. We'll see if passing it does much help. Yeah. And Bill, obviously, the infrastructure bill, a lot of economists say mid-decade you'd start feeling it because of the time it takes. This Build Back Better bill, you know, who knows, but it'd be a lot of cash in flux into the economy again after a $1.9 trillion bill in March for COVID. Um, And the question is what that means for inflation. As we have a new Federal Reserve uh, chairman, he's the same chairman, but dominated again by Joe Biden. He's going to have to deal with turning off the spigot at some time. Right. Well, we're told that by the White House, that this is the fix for inflation, more spending, um, including spending that's not paid for. I'm very dubious about that. Uh, I think, as was just said, this is a really interesting situation for Joe Biden now. Politically, if he failed to get his bill through, and that still may happen depending on what happens in the Senate, if he failed to get it through, he would take a big hit. I mean, he's not looked very competent on a host of issues from Afghanistan and inflation to the border. And uh, losing his signature domestic agenda piece of legislation, that would be uh, definitely be a big hit. The question is, if he passes it, is it really a victory? I think to me, this this sounds just like a Washington, D.C. victory. You know, every signing ceremony, all those trappings. Are Americans really going to feel better off a year from now from this? Or will it just add to the idea that he's not up to the job of doing it? I, I have my doubts that it's going to have um, all the uh, the effects that the Biden administration is um, is predicting, including its revenue estimates and so forth. So I'm not sure he wins either way. Yeah. Amy, that 
tax question, uh, you know, what is actually in the bill, you know, just looking at it, it's it's pretty stiff for some companies, um, uh, unable to depreciate uh, things. Um, the global minimum tax, corporate tax, is stiffer than they talked about in the world stage. Uh, so the devil's always in the details here. Right. And when you have, I don't know how many pages this ends up clocking in at, but it will be big. Um, it's, it is a whole lot of stuff that's going to get stuffed in here that um, you're going to see pop up in attack ads against Democrats on everything from immigration to, as you pointed out, some of the tax pieces of all of this. But I think Bill's exactly right. The, the question is, is this legislation, would you voters believe that this legislation is actually going to solve the problems they're feeling currently. The future is nice. Everybody wants a better future. And quite frankly, that's why I think so many of these bills are polling well, because in theory, it sounds great. Yes, we want to see better roads and bridges and child care tax credits and things like that. But the reality for people is they're still frustrated about COVID and about inflation and about it, just an overall sense that, as as one voter said to me the other day, or said in this focus group I was listening to the other day, you know, he said, I'm just feeling too worried to be optimistic. <laughs> you know, there's just so many things that can still go wrong. I just don't feel much hopefulness. And so that's what's confronting the president and his party right now. And, you know, look, to be fair, when you're president, there, there are things you just cannot control. We probably put too much emphasis on what a president can and can't do and should and shouldn't get credit for. But the reality is when you're in charge and things aren't going well, you get the blame when things are going well, even if you didn't necessarily have much to do with it, you get the credit. So voters have to feel like come next year, they are in a better place than they are today. And, and before where they were in, uh, you know, in, in 2020, when we were, at the height of the COVID uh, yeah. period. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at com. Susan, I wonder about messaging with this uh, with this White House. and And I wonder about you know, controlling the news cycle. This president is, they don't put him out a lot for Q&A. He doesn't do a lot of one-on-one interviews. Occasionally, you know, he does, but big events where world leaders have come in, uh, they have decided not to do the two and two, you know, reporter questions uh, with those world leaders. Do they control the narrative? And is that part of the issue here uh, about day to day? Well, they clearly aren't controlling the narrative. And uh, they have done, I think, not a particularly good job in messaging or else we wouldn't see this big disconnect between uh, how popular some of Biden's proposals poll and how low his approval rating is now. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think it's it's uh, it's it's right. that I mean, I think you are correct in noting that he's he does less spontaneous and extended uh, Q&A sessions with reporters. And we got used to with. President Trump, for instance, who talked to reporters 
uh, coming, not often in the formal setting of a news conference, but almost every day he was out there talking to reporters in one way or another. Uh, now, the, the Biden people, you know, they, they had a desire and they thought the country had a desire to lower their temperature a little bit on how often Americans were hearing from the president of the United States. Um, but I think they're I think that they are still struggling to figure out kind of where the balance is and how can they best deploy uh, President Biden to to make his case. Uh, this is going to be a test of that once this if, if this bill passes uh, the Build Back Better Act, this will be a test, a selling test for the administration, not only for the president, also for the vice presidents whose approval ratings are even lower than the president's and for the whole administration. Yeah, I like that thought. I mean, it's kind of like the Goldilocks messaging. The Maybe President Trump was the too hot uh, porridge and maybe Biden is a little too cold uh, because it doesn't seem like they're doing that job. Bill? Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I don't you know, I don't know where where it's going from here, because, again, we discuss these things, you know, as discrete parts. But again, I, to me, the most damaging thing for President Biden is just people look at him and he has few real victories, you know, things he can, he can say he got a bill passed or something. I don't again, I don't think that counts for the American people, but people look at the other things. They look at the border where even the borders are doesn't want to go to the border. They uh, they look at inflation. We were told we're told now that it's going to go away by the same people who told us it would never be here now. Um, we're looking at Afghanistan and so forth. He I think because of his age and his frailty. And so forth. I think just a lot of people think he can't do the job. And then you see the infighting over um, Vice President Kamala Harris, which I think is a function less of Kamala Harris and more that people are worried that Joe Biden might not be able to finish his term, certainly won't run for a second term. And do they really want um, Vice President um, Harris as plan B? I, I think there are all these worries coming together. Yeah. And, you know, Biden reportedly, calls a court in The Wall Street Journal, told allies this past week that uh, he is running for reelection in 2024. I'm not sure that, Amy, that that sold a lot of Democrats who, as Bill mentioned, uh, seem to be concerned about where the next round of leaders is coming from. Yeah, this feels so predictable, too, um, which is first term president gets into a pickle over these last four presidents, well, George W. Bush didn't count his mid bad midterm was 2006. But the previous, they they have a terrible midterm election and all the hand-wringing begins about, should this person run for re-election? Should they replace the vice president? Oh my gosh, they're going to get killed in the upcoming presidential election. And the midterm elections in many cases are not predictive of what happens just two years later. But in this case, as everyone's pointing out, it's not just that you have a president who's hit a hit a bad patch. And right now, if the numbers stay the same, we'll have a very bad midterm election. But that he's 79 years old would be in his 80s running for re-election. We've never had that before. And the uh, so the realities of a hmm, gosh, this president's struggling. And it's not just, OK, he has time to recover, but even if he does recover, He's going to be going into a reelection in his 80s. Um, I do think, though, that if Democrats in 2024 are looking at an environment where the economy is better, COVID is better, right? Um, 
People feel more optimistic than they do right now. I think the conversation about what comes next feels very different than right now. And I think what's also driving so much of this concern among Democrats is that Donald Trump comes back as the nominee uh, on the Republican side and that uh, Democrats are left once again with the question not of who do they want, who in their heart would they like to see run, but who do they think could best beat Donald Trump? Um, and that becomes a very different conversation than a, well, we don't know what's going to happen on the Republican side, so let's just let them go at it. Right. Susan, I've said numerous times on this podcast and other places that that decision, whether former President Trump runs for another term, is probably the biggest political decision on both sides of the aisle in coming months. A big decision will define the Republican race. In some ways, will define the Democratic race as well. And I think that our history with Donald Trump is that he will not make a definitive decision for some time. He'll be on his own timetable. He will not take it off the table. He continues to keep it on the table. He continues to talk to friends about how he is likely to run. But it seems to me that what we know about him is that he'll keep his option open until he's ready to tell us. And that makes it it increases the possibility for it to be disruptive in both parties. Is is Donald Trump willing? Not it's not only is Donald, does Donald Trump want to be the nominee again? Is Donald Trump willing to let somebody else be the Republican nominee again? Uh, that's a question that might be easier to answer. That is uh, quite the question because I think a lot of people are asking it. Uh, panel, thank you. Here's a bit of U.S. history on November twenty first, seventeen eighty nine. General Assembly meeting in Fayetteville ratified the United States Constitution, making North Carolina the 12th state. The process, though, wasn't easy, considering that in 1788, the General Assembly actually declined to ratify the United States Constitution, suggesting many amendments and calling for a Bill of Rights on November 16th, 1789. A second convention met to take up the matter again. The Constitution with the additional addition of the Bill of Rights was ratified five days into that convention. The vote came approximately 200 years after the first European settlers arrived on the fertile Atlantic coastal plain. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Bill, Susan, and Amy, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.